IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be talking about the new album by Lana Del Rey, Chemtrails Over the Country Club. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Well, first, I just want to take the opportunity to say to all of the loyal IndieCast listeners, welcome to Music's Biggest Night. Um, <laughs> that ne- never get ne- the joke never gets old. By the way, <laughs> it is good. I was, or is Music's Biggest Morning? Maybe is there? Does Music have a big morning yet? I'm talking about the loyal IndieCast listener who like waits for this the episode to drop at nine o'clock on the West Coast, twelve o'clock on the East Coast. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's true. The real heads, the true heads. Exactly. I mean, because like the Grammys, though, they have the biggest night. I just wonder if we could corner the biggest morning. Friday morning. That's us. That's us. So, yeah, the Grammys, they were like an eternity ago. So we won't spend too much time talking about that. I mean, did you, I I assume you didn't watch the Grammys at all. No. You know, this year I couldn't even be bothered to like make the two tweets I usually do. One of which is that like Beck you know, about Beck winning album of the year, whether or not he put out an album and the other like posting ghetto. <laughs> Actually, he a, a Beck album won something. Uh, I think Sean Everett won best engineering. Um, he's a guy who's like worked for a ton of indie rock bands, but I, I can't even name the Beck album that he won for. And also... Um, Is that Hyperspace? Oh, yes, that's it. That, that sounds about right. And also... Yeah. The, the, the big, the big event for me this year at the Grammys was that, um, you know, back in November, I made like some snarky tweet about Black Pumas, about how they, you know, if they didn't exist, the Grammys would have to invent them. And that got like re- brought up when Chris DeVille from Stereo Gum wrote about that band. You know, they're obviously like a like kind of a, a, a grassroots success off the streets of all, like streets of Austin, Texas. And then uh, he quoted that and then like... The day after the Grammys, I get this response like the Black Pumas do exist. We do exist, and we're definitely more real than anything the Grammys put out. And it was Ooh. actually one of the it was actually one of the guys in Black Pumas. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, it's I felt a little guilty, but you know, when you're when you're making fun of bands, there are real people behind it, which is why I don't do it as much as I used to. But yeah, well, you know what, Black Pumas, you know, all apologies. I've I don't think I've ever said anything disrespectful about Black yeah. Pumas. So like I'm I'm the good cop of IndieCast, and you're the bad cop as far as Black Pumas go. Um, going back to the Grammys, I watched about 20 minutes of it. I just turned it on mm-hmm. uh, randomly, and I was happy to have caught the in memoriam segment because that was really the only thing I, I wanted to see. I feel like award shows should be like 80 percent in memoriam segments <laughs> and 20% like montages. Yeah. And that's it. Because, um, you know, like uh, Brandy Carlisle sang uh, a song for John Prine, the last mm-hmm. song he ever wrote called I, I Remember uh, Everything. And it was great. I loved it. I, the in memoriam segment I thought was really well done. And just the idea of like remembering people who passed away and listening to their music. It's very nice, you know? And then, mm-hmm. With the montages, I don't know if you ever watched the Oscars, but they do this thing. It's like three or four times during the show where, like, they just, like, had these montages of, like, clips from old movies that it really has no connection to any of the movies that are nominated in that particular year. But the idea is to, I think, advertise the cinematic experience to the viewer to be like, hey, movies are great. You should watch movies. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I don't think I've seen one. I know exactly what you're talking about, though. It's a little weird because, you know, if you're watching the Oscars for four hours, you're probably already on board with movies. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, you don't really need, but they're not resting on their laurels, which I appreciate. Which, Whereas, like, when you watch the Grammys, you feel as though they're actively trying to talk you out of liking music uh, you know, by showing you the grossest aspects of, of the music business. So yeah. yeah, show some cool montages from old music videos or something and, and cut out everything else just <laughs> in memoriam and, and, and montages. I don't know if you saw this, but ratings for the Grammys were down dramatically. I think it was a 51% drop from the oh, previous God. year. And, you know, th- this is true of, I think, every award show and also true of, you know, sports. I mean, really, like, the last 
uh, salvation of over-the-air television are these live events, you know, because it's the only thing that people tune into because every, everything else is, you know, on demand. So you don't need to, you know, tune in at 8 p.m. to watch Modern Family or something. But <laughs> um, I'm curious to see if that trend continues after covid yeah. Uh, you know, once we come out of COVID, I I just feel like award shows. I mean, I, I feel like it might go up a little bit next year, but it just seems like in general, there's just fewer and fewer viewers for this sort of thing. It, I I wonder if like like what percentage of the Grammys viewership these days are people who are writing about the Grammys. You know, like <laughs> like or or people on social media that just want to talk about it. You know, there's there's there's. I mean, it is one of the most uh, tweeted about events during the course of a year. I mean, along with the Oscars. Yeah. A lot of people tweet about it. So I think people experience it that way. But, you know, it, it got me thinking because you asked me this week a really good question. You were like, what are the significant albums that have come out in 2021 so far? Like mm-hmm. the albums that feel that, you know, like, oh, this is going to be on the year end list yeah. for sure. This is like controlling the conversation. And it made me think about the Grammys because I just wonder... You know, because of COVID and the weirdness that's been going on, it seems that like the narratives that the media and award shows can create about like what the important art is uh-huh. has been really diminished. Yeah. And uh, in this year, so you do, it feels like these consensus albums are like less common during this COVID era that we're in. Yeah, especially now because I mean a lot of 2020s big ones. I mean these they were likely albums that were created prior to you know, the world going, like, shutting down. But, you know, when I think about, like, we're pretty, like, Lana Del Rey, that's pretty much, like, the big tentpole of, you know, as very normal people, non-music industry people call it Q1 2021. Um, And I think about, like, you know, this year's almost a quarter over, and uh, what were the big conversation pieces? Like, I actually, I know Metacritic's not really the best metric for assessing, like, what really mattered. But, like, when you look at the top 10, it was a Nick Cave album, uh, you know, and there will always be, like, that's the that's the highest rated album of the year. Oh, something from, like, a grime rapper named Giggs. I've not heard that yet. Like, a Neil Young live album, like a posthumous album from a British composer, a British singer-songwriter named Jane Weaver, uh, Arab Strap. Uh, Weather Station, Cassandra Jenkins, and Julian Baker. Now, I mean, some of them have got, like, you know, really good reviews. And, like, I mean, the Weather Station, for example, I, I just got to say, like, it's a perfectly fine album. I find it to be pretty boring. But, like, none of these have really, like, captured the imagination for, like, more than a few days at a time. And uh, I wonder if, like, that's just maybe people being cautious uh, for the beginning of 2021 and whether like, you know, the big, the heavy hitters will come up soon. I mean, I thought like, you know, with the kind of void of really big ticket albums, maybe people would just like take chances on like going super hype over like these weird, like no name acts just to have something to talk about. And I don't think that's really happened either. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something bigger going on in the culture where people in general are sort of checked out of the yeah. routine or the schedule that pop culture sets down for us every year. Yeah. You know, you, you saw that with sports where mm-hmm. people weren't really talking about sports in the same way that they were. I just realized uh, this morning that the NCAA tournament starts this weekend. It does. <laughs> Which I, you know, and I'm not a huge college basketball fan, but I usually watch March Madness. But I feel like that totally snuck up on me. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, yeah, I'll probably watch that maybe if I feel like (laughs) it. It seems that there's a lot of that going on. And it seems to be translating to music. I I wonder, too, that if in 2021, if you're going to see a lot of the big ticket artists that would be generating this conversation if they're just going to say, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. Yeah. People are getting vaccinated. Maybe we're going to be able to tour in 2022. Mm -hmm. Why not just wait another six or seven or eight months to put out a record? Like like, like maybe the albums that would have come out in this quarter are going to be coming out in September or October or maybe even early 2022 at this point. I mean, this could be a pretty barren year (laughs) for releases, (laughs) which is, 
which is terrible for us. Yeah. Oh God, <laughs> we're we're really gonna have to get creative. <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be doing mailbags like every other week, which is great. I love doing mailbag yeah. episodes. But uh, yeah, there's not gonna be a ton for people like us to talk about. But I just wonder if that's gonna happen. I mean, that that, that makes sense to me that that artists would do that. If you you know, it was different in 2020 because it just seemed as as though you know, touring was not going to happen no matter what for a long time. But yeah. now maybe people feel that, okay, if I wait a little bit longer, I can actually tie this record to a tour. So why not just wait a little bit longer? Yeah. Or you could be someone's like, you know what? I want to own the, con-. like, I think a good example is like Japanese breakfast, like her being on Fallon. Like, I feel like that's like a record that's going to be kind of a big fish in a little pond. Yeah, because, uh, you know, something's got, like, something's got to happen. So, I don't know. Hopefully, that'll hopefully that'll come in, in, in the near future. Or we'll just keep getting great mailbag questions, and uh, we'll just kind of pivot to that. I'm down. I'm down for either. <laughs> as far as, like, our favorite albums of the year so far, I mean, I would say Wild Pink for me. Uh, Wild Pink by a landslide. That, that, that's a big IndieCast favorite. I would say Julian Baker for me. I know that you're, you're probably not as high on that. Uh, there's an album I'm going to be talking about later on in this episode that I know you're also a fan of. It's not the Lana Del Rey record, but it's a different record that uh, I like a lot that uh, I would put among my favorites of the early years. So, you know, there's always really good records coming out. Um, it's just the responsibility of people like us to uh, bash people over the head with them so they want to talk <laughs> about it. Um, do we want to talk about the Ryan Schreiber book quick? Uh, about P- we gotta, we gotta just, we gotta give it a mention, you know, because like Ryan Schreiber has told me that he is an IndieCast listener, so we gotta give a shout to him for that. But um, founder of Pitchfork, a modern titan of music writing, you know, Pitchfork, obviously the most significant. <laughs> music publication uh, of the last 25 years. And he's going to be writing the story of the website uh, in a book that's coming out, I guess, in two years, 2023. Is there going to be an Ian Cohen mention in the index? Tom Bryan, like a guy who both of us follow, like the fir- he, he was the first guy to make, a, I'm just going to control F my name when this book arrives. And I guarantee like every writer who's, like written for Pitchfork for a significant amount of time is like thinking the same thing. Like this is, I can't think of something that's been this exciting for like the music writing community or will be like, I mean, is, is, is music writing as we know it going to exist by the time this book comes out, you know? I mean, it's, it's exciting for a segment of the music writing community that like wrote for Pitchfork during a particular moment in time that are going to be, you know, want to see how this history is contextualized. I mean, for me, I'm pretty sure that, that, the review I wrote of the Camper Van Beethoven album that came out in 2011 <laughs> will not be mentioned in this book. Uh, uh, that is about the extent of my significant writing uh, for that <laughs> site. But um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I've actually, I actually mentioned to my agent once about writing a Pitchfork book because I thought this could be interesting mm. to explore. And he was like, I don't know if there's any money in that. So I ended up not pursuing it. <laughs> It's probably different for Ryan, I'm sure, yeah. because he's the founder of it. You know, he would have a different perspective. Although I would be interested to read either a book or an oral history by someone who is <laughs> more impartial than Ryan. You know, someone like an outside writer, I think, would be interesting to discuss that. I actually, like, snuck in some Pitchfork stuff into my Radiohead book. I feel like yeah. that's the closest that, I, that I'll get to... Uh, to writing about Pitchfork in a book, the, that whole, you know, Kid A review that uh, that was written. But um, I'd love to see an anthology of, like, reviews that have been taken down from Pitchfork <laughs> over the years. Um, let's go to our mailbag segment. Yes. We're going to do two questions today uh, because our first question is actually fairly short, but I think it's kind of funny, so I wanted to include it. It says, uh, hello, Stephen Ian. Like the show, and then you put in parentheses, not love. <laughs> Please ask your readers to get to the goddamn point when submitting a listener question. Their questions contain too many sentences nowadays. Please eliminate three. P.S. I am not a crackpot. Sincerely, David from New York City. Um, The main reason I want to include this is just because of the opening line when he said, like the show, in parentheses, not love. You just wanted to make it clear his level of appreciation of the show. He's mildly into the show, not hardcore into the show. <laughs> um, and I, I appreciate his uh, his brevity, too, because obviously brevity is important to David. 
I don't know. I like the rambling questions personally. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I like it when our readers ramble or because they're usually pretty thoughtful when they're rambling. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I also, I just got to point out for people who don't quite get the joke. Like this is a, re, this is a Simpsons joke. Um, like it, it pretty much word for word, uh, except it's like grandpa Simpson talking about how they need to eliminate several States. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also, I like, like the show. This is a Simpsons joke. Oh yes, it is. It totally, like, I am not a crackpot that you see this, there's the good cop, bad cop. And there's the guy who understands Simpsons, Twitter on IndyCast and the guy who's less informed. Oh, so, man. Um, but yeah, day, like I, I just like, like the show, not love. I mean, that just shows we have room for growth. I mean, like we have to really be introspective here and see how we can improve so we can get David to go from like, a 7.5 to a best new podcast type thing, you know? Um, but yeah, I like the, I, I gotta, I gotta mention this. I like this question as well, because on the recent, um, the E word podcast, um, one of my favorite, uh, podcasts, like if you're an IndieCast listener who likes the parts where I ramble about some emo band you've never heard of, and you wish it was an hour and a half of that, that's the E word. And I mean that as the highest compliment. That is some real deep dive stuff. But they said, they did a mailbag episode recently. And, you know, Kyle and Ellie, they said, and I quote, I wish we were more like IndieCast because uh, they thought their mailbag questions were a bit frivolous. Um, whereas ours, they felt that they were very thoughtful and, um, you know, showed like a real kinship with us. So um, I'm just glad to see that we do get like, you know, just uh, mailbag things that are j just exist to make a Simpsons joke that maybe I'll appreciate and get get you a shout out on the show. Like, here are two things that get you to the top of the mailbag. Last week, there was a basketball metaphor. And this week, it was a Simpsons joke. Like, those are the two that really will catch the eye of myself, you know? See, and I like that you didn't point that out in our outline. So I would not... So I would not catch it when we said it. I just assumed you knew. Well, like, what season is that from? Is that from like the later seasons? No, no, this is prime. This is why, like, this oh, is man. this is why he feels comfortable. But it's actually like one of the lesser known episodes from the primary. It's the one where, actually, I can't remember which one. Is it the one where? I think it's the one where Grandpa becomes like a ghostwriter for Richie and Scratchy. Okay, I've not watched The Simpsons in twenty years. Like, I only really experience it now <laughs> through your retweets, really. Yes. Like for, through you making Simpsons memes uh, and other people uh, from like the emo punk Twitter world. That's the only way I experience The Simpsons. But I have not watched it <laughs> since uh, like nineteen ninety nine, probably. So uh, let's go to question two. Yes. This is from a, a listener named Jordan. He says, I am from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. Nice. We have a lot of Canadian listeners out there. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Lots of Canadians. Actually, and this question was going to be in our episode last week, but we ran out of time. But I wanted to make sure to get it in this episode. He says, I love the podcast. Tune in every week and listen to each episode more than once. Thanks for this, guys. My question is about Kurt Vile. His mm. album, Smoke Ring for My Halo, turned 10 uh, recently, and it is definitely a pivotal album for me. Between that and Waking on a Pretty Days, they are often seen as his best work by critics. Personally, I like all of his records, and Bottle It In is up right up there for me. So the question is, how has Kurt's music evolved over time? Did the albums actually give diminishing returns, like many reviews suggest? Or do you think it is more about the music scene changing, even the indie scene? Hmm. Have a great day, Jordan. Um, so, Jordan, I'm with you. I love Kurt Vile. I love Smoke Ring. I love Waking on a Pretty Days. I'm also a fan of all of his records. I actually disagree with the premise of this question a little bit because I feel that his albums are still like like pretty well received. I think Bottle It In got good reviews when that came out. I guess that was 2018 or so, maybe 2019. Um, it's interesting to compare him, I think, to The War on Drugs. Obviously, Kurt was... In the war on drugs, and Adam was in Kurt's band. They got started at around the same time, um, but like the war on drugs now, I mean they're significantly more popular, I would say, and it seems like that's by design. Like Kurt Vile to me seems to be following the example of someone like John Prine or even like Wilco, like these acts that occasionally intersect with the mainstream, but for the most part just do what they do, uh, and they have a sizable audience, but like they're never going to be the sort of conversation starter at the center like with tons of buzz so 
I think maybe that's what you're referring to, where you feel like he's diminished a little bit, like he's not getting the same kind of heat that he was in the early 2010s. But I also feel like he's a guy, I think he's probably 40 by now, maybe early 40s. He's kind of aged into that group now, like where you wouldn't be getting that kind of attention anyway. And I would just say, too, that I wouldn't underestimate his influence on like the younger generation of like band camp singer-songwriters. Uh, people that sort of do what Kurt Weill does, which is take these classic rock influences like Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and filter it through more of an internet lo-fi sensibility. I mean, that, that's a pretty common uh, formula for a lot of indie artists. And Kurt Weill, to me, seems like a foundational influence on that kind of music. Um, now, I'm guessing you feel differently because, I mean, because you used to be more into Kurt Weill, right? And you've faded. You know, it's an interesting angle to see him more as a potential influence because when I think of, like, you know, who's, like, who's influencing, like, band camp artists who still, like, focus on guitar, I think more like Car Seat Headrest or Alex G. But, you know, when I think back to, like, Waking Our... Uh, but I think Kurt Vile is an like, influence on those guys. Yeah. I mean, I think Kurt Vile, like... I mean, certainly Alex G. Yes, absolutely. I mean, seems like the younger Kurt Vile. Yeah, I mean, with, with Smoke Ring for My Halo, um, you know, one of the reasons that album spoke so much to me, and, you know, today the reason I love it so much is that it does have this almost like solo artist band camp ambiance to it. Like it's clear, like it's not quite a Kurt Viles and Kurt Vile and the Violators type album, like the later ones, but you know, there are drums, obviously there are other musicians, but it just, it, it sounds just like a lonely album. Um, it's mostly just like looping guitars or like drum machines. And um, it just creates this uh, enveloping atmosphere. And also I think Smoke Ring for My Halo is some of the best sounding guitars uh, I've heard in the past decade or even further back to that. So I love that record. Um, you've seen me tweet about it of late as it turned 10. I also love Waking on a Pretty Days as well. Um, that's kind of the album I think of, you know, a master of his craft type work. Like he, you know, just the confidence he accrued from making uh, Smoke Ring for My Halo, applying it to, a, a more robust sound and, you know, 10 minute songs bookending it. And uh, like more, more like overtly classic rock, like a song like KV crimes and songs about like being a father. And it just struck me as being very like, you know, this was prior to lost in the dream. And it always seemed to me like from that point that Kurt Vile was going to be the big tent artist, whereas war on drugs may have been like the side project. But, you know, with what happened after that, I mean, I often think of this in terms of like hip hop because they're just so much more prolific. I mean, there are the artists who like I'm obsessed with and then, uh, you know, they kind of gradually get worse, but I overlook it. And then one day I kind of wake up. It's like, wait a minute, this artist got kind of whack. I mean, that's like, you know, Ghostface or Cameron or Lil Wayne. And then there are the ones who I think of who like are still good. They're still like doing what is clearly like objectively solid work. And then I just wake up one day. I'm like, no, nah, for some reason this isn't hitting, you know, like run the jewels or push a T. And that's, that is where believe I'm going down happened for me with Kurt Vile. Like I cannot think of a record that I turned on more quickly than that. Despite like, like it's not bad, but I, I, I to, when I heard it, I'm like, I hate this. It's I, not bad. It's yeah. actually awesome. Yeah. I, I, but like you didn't, but I can see, I can see what you're saying because you're not saying it's bad. You said you, you kind of got your fill of him is what you're saying. What, right? what happened with him is that I think, and I, I, I say this about the national sometimes much to your chagrin, but like, I think that he went from being like a very, um, I, I felt like there was an emotional connection I could make from like waking on a pretty days to like he started playing a character ca called Kurt Vile, which can be effective, but it's like I just think he became a little too self-aware in a way that I found to be very, I don't know, not distasteful, but like it's like, eh, like I, I don't need this anymore, you know? Like I feel like I couldn't just, I couldn't like emotion, it just did not resonate the way the other stuff did. And, you know, and going forward, I mean, his music. Like, I wouldn't reject it outright. Like, I heard Pretty Pimpin' on the radio the other day. And it's like, ah, maybe I should give this another shot. But, you know, with what with what uh, our, our our reader has, like, has suggested, I think there's a tendency to conflate, like, 
when an artist get doesn't get best new music anymore, they've disappeared from the conversation, which is not at all the case with Kurt Vile. Like I think he's just kind of transitioned to a more sustainable like um, like he's got fans. Like I don't I don't think that he can, will play. If Kurt Vile ever tours again, I am not concerned that if I go to a Kurt Vile show, it's going to be like half empty. Um, it, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think he's always going to play. You know, First Avenue, which which is the venue in my town, Minneapolis. He's always mm. going to play rooms like that. I think, and it makes sense to me that the War on Drugs eventually became a bigger band because mm. I think what they do is just more accessible to people, and it's more about the music and and the vibe that those records create. And of course, I mean, I also think that like Lost in the Dream and Deeper mm. Understanding are probably better records than what Kurt Vile has ever made. I mean, those are some of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. But um but Vile to me again, he he slots in that sort of idiosyncratic lifer yeah. singer-songwriter lane that and yeah, I expect him to be making records in 20 years still that will not be again commanding the conversation. Although again, I he is an artist that I think could always be reinserted back in. Yeah. I, I really think that he, in a way that Wilco is sometimes. I mean, it yeah. seems like every 10 years, people realize, oh, yeah, Wilco's still around and they're still a good band. Let's let's get excited about their record again. And then and then they maybe go back to like making jokes about them. Yeah. But um, you know, he's an easy artist to take for granted, but I think he's always going to be around doing his thing, which is good. And I think in a way that's a better path. For all artists, I I think if you're going to be the artist that's going to rely on critical acclaim or best new musics, that's not a great path, I don't think, for long-term sustainability. And and we've talked about that on on this show, because critics are fickle, and critics get bored with artists very quickly, uh, which could be a good segue into our Lana Del Rey conversation. It is a great segue into the Lana Del Rey conversation. I still got it, baby. That was totally improvised, too. That was me. That was like, you know, Jerry Garcia in 1973 right there <laughs> type segue, if I, if I can pat myself on the back. Um, Chem Trails Over the Country Club. It's a record dropped this morning. Hopefully it did. I mean, it's possible that this record was delayed again between us taping this episode and it going up on Friday. But I'm going to assume it's going up. It seems pretty clear that it's going to be released. It's the seventh album by Lana Del Rey. Uh, it was originally going to come out in September, but it was delayed, of course, because of, of COVID-related complications. This is Lana Del Rey's um, follow-up to Norman fucking Rockwell, yeah. which came out in 2019 and was extremely well-received. A record that I think was set up on a tee for critics to knock out of the park because it's the end-of-the-year record. I'm sorry, the end of the decade record. It makes a, it's a big statement record, you know, about I I saw there was a headline in the Atlantic that referred to it as an obituary for America. Wow. Which just give it just give it the nine point five right there. I mean, people <laughs> are gonna be excited about that. Um I think Pitchfork called Lana Del Rey one of America's greatest living songwriters mm-hmm. in its review of Norman Fucking Rockwell, which is high praise indeed because there's still a lot of great American songwriters who are alive. Mm. Uh, so being, you know, Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Carol King, Smokey Robinson, all these legends, Lana Del Rey being put right in that company. Um, it is interesting though, with this record that in a way she seems like she's being set up for a letdown, uh, <laughs> because of some things that have happened, I think in this album cycle, you know, there, I mean, this was before the album cycle, but she got into that spat with Ann Powers from NPR. Uh, there was that argument. There was that comment she made about the Capitol riot where she seemed to be defending Trump a little bit, but then she said that her words were taken out of context. Um, <laughs> and also just this record, it's not as, I think, deliberate in catering to like what critics would like. It's a smaller record in a lot of ways. It's more intimate. It's I think and I think that's intentional. Yeah. Um, but it just makes me wonder, like, how is this record going to be received? Uh, I mean, wh- what are your initial feelings on it? I mean, just as a a spectator of the game, as it were, like this record is doubly exciting to me. You know, because 
it's you know i i think she, she is up there as far as like the most compelling american songwriters like best is you know a very subjective term but um she you know deserves our attention but i think this is like the first... i don't know if i would say songwriter i don't know if i would say best songwriter i would say vibe curator most... i don't know but I... or or just or you know indie star or or, or or personality yeah because i feel like what she does and i think this is true on this record it really like asserts her as a master of vibe mm. you know there's a very cinematic quality to her music where I think if you deconstruct it, if you are if you break down her lyrics or you break down the music, it can fall apart a little bit because I mean there's some clunkers on this on this record lyrically, and I think that's also true. There are on every record, <laughs> on every record. But um, if you just let it like kind of waft over you, it it does get into your system. I mean it it does set a tone. Um, I think in a really good, in a really masterful way. I mean, like she creates a world unlike pretty much any other indie artist and maybe any other pop star. Like there's, there's like Lana Del Rey world. Yes. You know, and like, that she brings you into. And I think this record in a way is like a return to that. Whereas Norman fucking Rockwell was like looking at the wider world. It's like, I'm, I'm bringing you back to my world now with this record. And I think that's super exciting to me because, um, you know, this is like, I think the first really big pre-pandemic art, like a 2019, like the last year before the pandemic. Like this is the first heavy hitter album to come from like the class of 2019. So we can do a real before and after, um, you know, type evaluation of it. And this is exciting also because like, unlike a lot of the you know, consensus picks over the past couple of years. Like, I think that like Lana Del Rey is like one of the few who might actually face a backlash. Like I can't imagine like whatever Casey Musgraves puts out or, uh, you know, Mitski or like, I'm trying to think of the other consensus pick. Oh, Fiona Apple. Like, you know, I think whatever they do, like, I think they're just so likable as personalities that no one's going to like, you know, conceive of a backlash against them. But like Lana Del Rey has this, like you mentioned, like her words may get taken out of context a lot in her, you know, press quotes. But I think I wish I could come up with a better word than like, there's kind of like a shittiness about it. Like not that she's a shitty person or the music is shitty, but like there's this kind of bad vibes to her uh, sometimes in the words she says that can leave open the possibility of like her making something that is really poorly received. And that's exciting to me because I think with a lot of the big consensus artists, there's just this air of inevitability where like we're supposed to root for them. And don't get me wrong. Lana Del Rey has a Stan army as Ann Powers knows, but um, I don't know. Her albums seem more like battlegrounds. And like you were saying, this one brings us back to her world in a way that I find very pleasing because I think a lot of celebrities in 2020 tried to, you know, show they could empathize with like the average Joe who was stuck in their house when, you know, in a lot of ways for like the super elite life didn't really change all that much at all. And the first song on this album is about how she sort of wishes she was like not famous again. So like the in-person Lana Del Rey and the on-album Lana Del Rey, like both seem like people who would just kind of exists like not really being affected by all the uh you know turmoil of the past 20 years or the past well the past year which felt like 20 and it mentions list it it mentions the first song about like listening to kings of leon what a move i i just i love that lyric right there yeah that's a great line that's like the most quintessentially like lana del rey moment (laughs) on the record i think the kings of leon reference i mean um you mentioned white dress being this song where she's singing nostalgically about being 19 and working as a waitress and essentially like reimagining her life if she had never become famous. Yeah. And, and that really sets the tone for the rest of the record because these lyrical uh, themes recur in a lot of the songs where she's talking about leaving Los Angeles, uh, you know, moving to suburbia basically and like living more of like a normal person's life. Like the, like the title track is about, her you know fantasizing about essentially like living in the suburbs and you know taking kids to soccer practice and and uh having you know these sort of like romantic interludes like with 
you know, like like the middle-aged dad and you're the middle-aged mom <laughs> and you're going to hook up in the suburbs and all that. I mean, that's the fantasy uh, on, on this record. And um, I feel like there's been this narrative that she's been talking about in her interviews where she refers to herself as an underdog. Yes. I don't know if you saw that. She, she did an interview with Jack Antonoff where <laughs> she said something like, you know, I'm going to die an underdog and I'm happy uh, or, and, and that's fine with me. And it just makes you think, like, well, if she's an underdog, like, what are, like, 99.9% of other musicians in the world? <laughs> because, again, she is this incredibly well-acclaimed, very successful singer-songwriter, and she still sees herself um, as an underdog. And I was thinking about this. I have a review of this album that, that is also running on Friday on Uproxx, if you want to check that out. And I feel like for her... Even after all this time, even after all the praise that Norman fucking Rockwell got, which we talked about this in a previous episode, it felt like the reviews for that record in a way were trying to make up for some of the bad reviews she got for Born to Die and yeah. like records she put out earlier in her career. Because that album really feels like a culmination of like that decade. Oh, absolutely. Um, and But I think from her perspective, she feels misunderstood because I think people still contextualize what she does as being ironic or as being, you know, sort of the, of her like hiding behind like a persona or an avatar. And I, and I think that in her mind, there's no irony in what she does, that the things that she talks about are things that she actually cares about or thinks are awesome. So Mm -hmm. like, she probably does think, thinks it's awesome to like be in suburbia and take your kids to soccer practice. You know, this isn't like an ironic move. It reminds me of like how critics talk about Father John Misty. Yeah. Because I think there's a similar thing there where he's always contextualized as an ironist, but it's like he's making records about how much he loves his wife and how, uh, you know, upset he is by the Trump era. Like, I think those are incredibly earnest records in a lot of ways. There's some playfulness in how he presents himself in interviews, but I think it's wrong to, to frame what he does as irony or just purely persona. I think Lana Del Rey has a similar thing. And it seems like that's what really bugs her, maybe, in terms of like how people talk about her work. It seemed like that's what bugged her, for instance, about the Ann Powers review, which I thought was like really well written. I thought she made a lot of good points. Overall positive, and maybe like the single like not rave review that that entire album got. It was almost like a chance that chance the rapper story where like some guy wrote a mildly critical live review on like MTV news and the manager had it taken down. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just like, it wasn't that crit. It was like a critique, but not really critical. It was more, I, I felt like it was less about saying this is good or this is bad yeah. than saying, what does this mean? Right. Or, you know, what, like, why does this work? Which is always, I think the most interesting form of, of, of music writing when you can get beyond the sort of hot or not aspect. <laughs> And, but 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 that I you know that idea because that was the thing that Powers wrote about this this persona of Lana Del Rey and and how that changes music because she's juxtaposing all these things that don't seem to go together and she's collapsing you know the boundaries that exist between things that you would think don't shouldn't coexist and she kind of makes them coexist which I think is true but like again like I think from Del Rey's perspective she doesn't like being contextualized as this person who isn't being real i mean that's the irony of this is that there was a huge critical argument about authenticity with lana del rey where critics were sort of saying authenticity doesn't matter so you shouldn't criticize lana del rey for changing her name or or for writing a song called video games or any of the things that people were talking about with born to die but i think lana del rey looks at herself as being authentic i I think she believes in authenticity Mm -hmm. which is a interesting it's like an interesting conundrum with her because I think the way she's talked about mm-hmm. often doesn't line up with how she sees herself or even how her fans see her. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very interesting aspect of the whole Lana Del Rey phenomenon for me. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, like when, when I hear about like someone who like continues to think that they're an underdog, even after years and years and years, I mean, like I'm a huge smashing pumpkins fan. So, you know, I can understand how like, some people can just like heart, like can can glom onto just some criticisms they receive about like whether or not they're real because you know that was Billy Corgan's whole thing throughout the '90s. It's like they, he wasn't seen as like 
you know, serious compared to Kurt Cobain or Thurston Moore. And I'm, that's about where the comparisons stop here. But like, I think it's, 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 you know, mentioning Father John Misty. This album to me really seems like her version of God's Favorite Customer, which is the intentional look. I've made my huge 70 minute statement about like where I see this country and now I'm dialing things back. Um, and what I, appreciate about this record you know compared to the previous one like norman fucking rockwell was like undeniably an impressive piece of work uh it was also really fucking long <laughs> you know like i just it, especially because she works in very um very slow tempos and very like rich instrumentation it was a lot to get through and with this one it's you know 40 minutes or so 10 10 or 11 songs and I can, you know, listen to it on my way to work and back. And, um, you know, I think that this, in a way, like, makes a smart move by not trying to top uh, Norman fucking Rockwell. Also, I think she made a very smart maneuver by, like, not going by its original title, which was White Hot Forever. I know that a lot of the... (laughs) A lot of the... I mean, that was, I think, you know, come up with, like you know, in 2019, like it's similar to the 1975 where they just come up with the album title, like two years before the album actually drops. But, um, you know, that motif gets, does get repeated a lot, like uh, white hot forever. And I'm sure because I have brain worms as a music writer, people are going to like glom onto that as like a talking point, especially since the one thing we've seen criticized about this album was the album cover, uh, you know, which makes it seem like an actual meeting at a country club. Um, it was, it's almost like a WandaVision type picture, you know, of, uh, <laughs> right. yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think with this album, I, I do see it being, I think it's, I like, I think it's good. I think there are some, you know, songs that are a little clunky, some songs that are perhaps a little too Lana Del Rey for their own good. Um, uh, but she totally owns this lane. And I think that this album, uh, will like whether or not you think she's one of the best songwriters, I think she's one of our definitive artists and, I just love the idea of this one being maybe not like a minor album, like the one that gets like three and a half or four stars on all music guide that, you know, people kind of forget about uh, compared to the big, big, big ones, but it's still like satisfying in its own way. Like whatever the, whatever the version of, you know, someone going to the UCD store and finding like tunnel of love or like the Prince album, like around the world in a day like that, the 40 minute like minor album from an artist imperial phase i think that this is what uh i think that this is what you know Chem trails over the country club represents for her you know and that's and that and that's interesting to me too you know yeah i i i like the god's favorite customer comparison i mean the difference is that he that father john misty was following up an album that was very polarizing i mean a lot oh. of people hated pure comedy so it almost seemed like he had to remedy that with God's favorite customer, but I, but I think that comparison makes sense to me because Kim Trails Over the Country Club is also a more personal record. Again, yeah. it's turning away from the outside world and turning back to I think her own, her own world, the world that she's created on her previous records and her own I think life and in obsessions. Can I just say? I mean, I think I've said this on other episodes, but I I do like playing a game called What Would Happen If Father John Misty Did This uh, with, 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 with some artists. Like, like what if in an alternate universe, Father John Misty had put out an album called Norman Fucking Rockwell? Like, how would have critics re- reacted to that? Or like, what if Father John Misty, his new record was called Daddy's Home? And it was about his dad being in prison for white collar crimes, which I don't think his dad was a white collar criminal at all. I'm just saying like, if he was in that St. Vincent narrative, you know, pre-release album, like how would people have reacted if that was like a father John Misty album narrative? You know, I, 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 I feel like the reaction would have been much more negative, but I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but to me, that's always an interesting uh, mind, like thought experiment to play sometimes with the album titles. All right, we've now reached the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where we talk about albums that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so this one's a this this one is an album I'm like really excited about, but it's a little difficult to talk about because it's it's kind of hard to find on Bandcamp. It's a band called 
Paranul, like P-A-R-A-N-N-O-U-L. And I have to spell that out because uh, this artist is, uh, it's like a bet, it says on the band campaign, just a student writing music in my bedroom in Seoul, Korea. And all the song titles and lyrics are in Korean. Uh, on Bandcamp, they translate them. But this record, um, it, I think it's number one on Rate Your Music right now, as far as like albums reviewed in 2021. And it has a it has a story about just kind of feeling like a you know just feeling like a loser and making a uh, bedroom album about it. Uh, the thing about this, even though it's like a solo record. Um, it brings together like a lot of really huge sounds. Um, there's a lot of Smashing Pumpkins circus Siamese dream in here. A lot of uh, shoegaze music. There's some twinkly indie stuff as well. Um, early M83. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's in a way like the, I don't know, the ideal for what a Bandcamp album could be, which is it's home recorded, but it's also 62 minutes long. So it's just someone who can throw every idea at the wall to see what sticks and put together with this point of view of like nostalgia for like the glory days that never happened. Um, some of the song titles are analog sentimentalism to see the next part of the dream. I can feel my heart touching you. This, this is the sort of album that if this were like 2003, like this is an album I could see like getting like a 9.2 in 2003 on pitchfork, like just this random album plucked out of obscurity and thrust into, I don't know, greater notoriety because it it just sounds like a lot of music that I like. Um, and obviously the ceiling is much lower for a band like this in 2021. But what you can do is just like Google P-A-R-A-N-N-O-U-L Bandcamp and you'll find it. It's an album with a blue, blue sky smokestack to see the next part of the dream. Like I guarantee if you're into any of the kinds of music that I've mentioned, this one will be for you. So it's pastiche, but like all the pastiches I love. So, well, I want to talk about a record that actually Ian brought up last week, but because we didn't really do a recommendation corner segment, I thought was worth bringing up again because it's a record I really like. It's a band called really from, yes, and they're from Boston. Uh, and, uh, they just put out their third record. It's a self-titled record. Again, this band's called really from, which, it seems like a hard band uh, name to Google, but if you just put really from band, it, mm-hmm. it'll come up. I think live is still like the hardest <laughs> band of all time to Google. Not that anyone's going to Google live, really. The, the, I think might be the hardest. Oh, the, the, yeah, they're up there too. Um, so I feel like this band was worth bringing up again because I think they're great. And also I feel like this is like a total indie cast band i mean they feel like a true melding of our mutual influence uh, influences and interests uh they're a band on top shelf records which is known as an emo label but i could also imagine them being on three low bed records which is more of like a psychedelic improvisational and primitive label um i described them on twitter as being like if slint was really into steely dan which is kind of like too reductive maybe a little too (laughs) cute but i hopefully that gets people in the door Basically, this is a band that they they combine like jazz improvisational influences with like basically like math rock. Yeah. So you'll be in the middle of a song and there'll be this like really kind of beautiful jazzy section, and then all of a sudden like these heavy guitars and like a crazy time signature will like barge in and take it in a different direction. Or you'll be hearing this more like a rock song, and then all of a sudden this like really awesome, almost like ambient synthy section will come into the song. It's one of those records that, uh, you know, we talked on this show about how we're always hoping that like indie music can be like a little more unpredictable, Mm -hmm. a little noisier, a little more experimental. And this record, I think, is totally in line with people who are looking for that kind of record. It's, It's one of the more, I think, genuinely unpredictable albums that I've heard this year, but it has its own sense of logic. So even as it moves into different genres, it makes sense in the context of the band. It's not just eclectic for the sake of being eclectic. It actually pays off, I think, in a really big way. Uh, this is actually their third record. I think they had a record come out in 2014 mm-hmm. and another one in, in, in 2017. So they're putting out records every three or four years or so. Um, this is a band that I would really love to see live. Yeah. I, and hopefully when we can go see shows again, they'll be coming to my area. I just feel like 
as good as this record is, I suspect that their live shows take what's on the record into different directions, especially because of the improvisational aspect of what they do. Uh, so, yes, for those of you who are maybe sick of singer-songwriters or, you know, run-of-the-mill punk bands or whatever it is that seems to be popping up in indie music these days, I would really recommend this record. Again, it's called Really From. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, whatever else I could say about it, it doesn't sound like any other record that you're going to hear in this moment. Yeah. I want to just also give a, a moment to say, like I interviewed them uh, for stereo gum. You could find it there. They used to be known as people like, uh, people like you. Uh, they had to change their name, but yeah, they, they, like Steve was saying, like they're on a label primarily in the past known for emo. They evolved out of a band called I killed giants, which uh, was a very aggressive and you know thought provoking emo band, but like, yeah, they are all like highly trained jazz musicians uh, playing. Um, you know, they all uh, their music is informed by jazz and improvisational, but it's still like very much in the realm of like indie rock. Like it does, it, there's an edginess to the vocals and also to the lyrics as well. It's uh, a lot of it is about like an identity, particularly. Uh, between people who are from like mixed heritage, like I know there's uh, the one of the lead singers, Chris. He's Chinese and Puerto Rican descent. Uh, Michi Tassi, the uh, other vocalist, um, is also I believe Japanese and white. And there's you know there's just like a lot of things melding together. And like Steve said, there's really nothing that sounds like this right now in 2020 or, or even uh, other years. So. Um, I was hoping that this would be the kind of record that would get a lot more uh, attention, given that there, you know, there aren't these big uh, tentpole type albums. So hopefully, this one will be a grower that people, you know, continue to discover as twenty twenty one goes on. Yes, we're whipping it up. We're giving them the indie cast bump. We've mentioned them two episodes in a row now. So if yeah. you haven't checked them out yet, you have to do it now. Ian and I have both recommended them. They both have they have a foot in each of the kind of music that we like. I think so. Check them out if you haven't already. Um, this concludes another episode of IndieCast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week with more reviews and news and hashing out trends. Take care. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box.